Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you, so let's get to it. Good morning, Ascent. It is uh, so good to see you guys. Uh, I am uh, both excited and I feel the weight of preaching this message today. So uh, we have this mission as proclaimers of God's word uh, to be two things. And we can't be both uh, fully. Only Jesus was able to be both fully. Uh, And that is we are to bring grace and we are to bring truth. And I feel like preachers always tend to lean towards one or the other. Uh, you, you've probably all heard the truth preachers, and you're like, you're leaving, and you're like, man, that guy's mad at somebody, and I don't know who he's mad at. Uh, just always yelling and angry, and um, I remember First Baptist Woodward, God bless, love that church. I grew up there, and I can, I, I probably told you this story, because it's literally ingrained into my head, but I remember as a kid, seven, eight years old, uh, being told by this lady that if I didn't repent of my sins, I was going to burn in hell forever. And, uh, you know, it's like, do you want to go to heaven with your mom and dad? Or do you want to burn in the pits of hell? And it was like, geez, lady, I, uh, I don't know. But uh, where are you going to be? Because I think I want to be in the opposite of whatever place you're going. Uh, I probably shouldn't have said that. That's inappropriate. Uh, but so there's, there's the truth. Like, you, you lean towards truth. And then there's other guys who lean towards grace. And I find myself leaning towards grace. Like last week, I got to preach a sermon on grace. Jesus loves beggars. And like I, I was really in, in the flow. It was easy. The message came together uh, really simple for me. Uh, this week, we see truly a tragic story. And we see the truth side of Jesus's ministry on display. And I did not see my wife yesterday until 10 o'clock because I was working on my sermon all day. And it wasn't that it was hard for me to exegete the text or pull it out, but it was like, I, I want you guys to know that I love you. And I want you guys to hear this is a grace message. And yet I am terrified that somebody will leave here feeling condemned. I am terrified that somebody will leave here feeling like, man, that was a weight on my shoulders that I cannot bear. And so as we go through this, I want to let you know I'm loading bricks on your shoulders throughout the message. And then I'm hopefully going to take those bricks off. I'm not going to. Hopefully Jesus is going to take those bricks off. And you'll leave here feeling built up as you go on. Uh, With that said, some of you who would call yourselves Christ followers, I do pray that there is a holy conviction. Not condemnation, but conviction. There's a difference. Conviction is, man, I've been aware of where I am outside of God's commands, and I I want to follow that because I believe He is good. And and then condemnation is, I am a terrible person, and and I'm going to leave here, and I feel like I can never follow this Jesus guy. I do not want condemnation, but I am okay with conviction. And for some of you today, at the very beginning uh, of this series, I told you I had two goals. Number one, my goal was I wanted to see more of you become Christians, which literally means little Christ ones, Christ followers, uh, because I truly believe that's the way you can experience salvation, find peace, no purpose, and live fulfilled. And then I said my other goal, which is, doesn't sound like a pastor at all, is that I pray that some of you would say, you know what, I thought I was a Christian, but really what I was was just a person who came to church for my whole life. Or I thought I was a Christian, but really I just called myself a Christian because I wasn't an atheist and I wasn't a Buddhist. And I wanted you to be able to acknowledge, you know what, I'm actually not a Christian. And here's why I wanted that for you. Because if you admit that, then number one, you can free yourself up to decide what you want to do with your life instead of just coming to church as a bad hobby. Because it is a terrible hobby. You shouldn't come listen to a guy yell at you for 45 minutes if you don't actually believe what he's saying. And so that some of you who are broken can actually then begin to follow the true and the real Jesus. Because that's actually where it's going to happen for you to experience salvation, find peace, no purpose, and live fulfilled. 
it breaks my heart that so many people follow an imaginary Jesus. I have people come and talk to me and they say, you know, I don't believe in God anymore because I believe this about God. And I'm like, ooh, you should be an atheist. I don't believe in that God either. But good news for you is that God's not actually the God of the scriptures. And so I, I, I'm, I'm praying today that you guys would feel that message as we do it. And I'm not just going to tell you I'm praying it. We're actually going to pray together. And as I'm praying, if you would, just pray for me. Pray that God would give me the boldness of John the Baptist, the boldness of Jesus. Pray that it would be God's word speaking through me and not Blake interjecting into any of it. Father God, I think one of the reasons why it's difficult for me to preach on truth text is because I'm so aware of my need for your grace. Uh, Lord, I I never want to put myself up on a pedestal uh, and let these people think that I have it all figured out and they need to get up on my level. Lord, I'm in the trenches with them. (laughs) I I have sin in, in, in my week this week, God. I'm a beggar in need of your grace. And yet, Lord... As I stand to proclaim your word, I I have to. I have to proclaim it for what it is. I have to stand up here with an authority that has been given to me by you. Lord, I pray that as I preach, people would today see uh, your authority in this text. And they wouldn't think that I was trying to place my authority over them. And Lord, quite honestly, I just pray that you would continue to work on me and my fear of man. As, uh, Lord, it doesn't really matter uh, what they think as long as you are pleased with what happens today. Lord, I do pray that you would do amazing, powerful things in the lives of these people. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so what Mark is doing, it's really interesting here, uh, is he is comparing King Herod to King Jesus. Uh, I think he wants us to see that to be in the kingdom of God, which is what the gospel of Mark's all about, God's bringing his kingdom, you have to be willing to surrender to the kingdom of God, to Jesus' kingship. And some people will not do that because you want to be the king or the queen of your own life. You want to make your own decisions your own way. And if Jesus can make your kingdom better, that's cool. But you're not actually going to enter into Jesus's kingdom. So in other words, you're not going to obey Jesus if you don't want to do it. This is really the foundation of what we see here. And the reason I say that and the reason I put it together is because Mark puts it together for us. So throughout the Gospel of Mark, when you're reading the Bible, uh, you you should read the Bible like it's fiction. Now, I didn't say read the Bible as fiction because it's not fiction. Uh, But you should read the Bible as if it is fiction. In other words, you're you're looking for the underlying message. You're, You're looking at everything. And in Mark, what we see throughout the scriptures is he does this thing called a sandwich. Like, I know you're like, man, I'm hungry. Uh, different kind of sandwich. He has, he starts a story. That's funny you're in my head than what you responded. Uh, I had an image of like an ice cream sandwich all week. Uh, anyways, uh, so he starts a story and then he interrupts his own story. Uh, and then he finishes the story later. And what he wants us to do is look at the story in the middle. So he starts with the story of sending out the disciples. And then he has the story of King Herod. And then in verse 30, which we won't get to today, uh, he ends up by coming back to the disciples who are coming back from the end of their mission. So let's jump into it. Let's look at it. Uh, chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. It says, He, he being Jesus, summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. See, what Jesus is doing there is he's doing king things. Who gets to give authority? A king gives authority. Who gets to tell people what to do? A king is the one who tells people what to do. In other words, if you come here to me and you say, Blake, I got this ticket from Woodward PD. Uh, and, and, and if I say to you right now, you're forgiven of that ticket. You don't have to pay it. I have no authority. So it doesn't matter what I say. You're not going to be able to go to them and say, hey, Blake said I didn't have to pay this. They're going to say, okay, what does that matter to us? Because the person with authority is the only person who can say this is forgiven or this is not forgiven. 
And Jesus is saying, I have the authority. You're going to go out on my mission with my authority. This is king work. And then look at what he does. It says this. It said, he instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on an extra shirt. He said to them, when you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. Jesus, that's going to take a lot of trust. <laughs> like, why can't we take, uh, you know, our, our little granola bars? You know, Peter's mom made us these awesome cookies. Can we take them? And Jesus is like, no, you got to trust in me totally and fully. You got to trust that I'm a good king that is going to provide for you. You got to trust in what I am saying. You are under my authority. You are my subject. You are not the king. I am the king. And here's the, the most offensive thing about the kingdom of God. There is one throne and you don't get to sit on it. I was reading a book this week, and uh, it's called The Eternal Current. And uh, this quote really shook me this week. It was a beautiful story. I thought I'd just bring the book instead of describing it. I'm just going to read a little section for you. Uh, It says, after running from the Middle East, he's talking about a professor he knew. After returning from the Middle East a few years ago, one of my friends asked Dr. Bilzilski. This is the professor he's talking about. It's an 85-year-old man. says, Dr. B, what do you think would happen if Jesus walked into Jerusalem today? That's a great question. What would it be like if Jesus were here today? Here's what this sweet old saint says about what Jesus would do if he was here today. The 85-year-old educator, theologian, and mentor to many closed his eyes for a moment and finally whispered in his thick French accent, Jesus would probably do now what he did then. He'd take care of the poor, speak truth to power, and get himself killed. As I read that, I thought, man, how different is that image from what many of us think of what Jesus would do? Like, I, I think we have this image of a, of a soft Jesus that if he were here today, he wouldn't make anybody mad. You, you don't think Donald Trump would be mad at King Jesus? You don't think that Joe Biden would be mad at King Jesus? You don't think that Putin would be mad at King Jesus? Absolutely, they would be hacked off at him because he's not sharing the throne with anybody. And I think we have this image that Jesus would be buddy-buddy with our favorite political candidate. And that's not the way it would work at all. Because Jesus would be bold enough to call them out where they are against his kingdom. Jesus would say, I'm not your friend. You're my enemy if you're not going to surrender in front of me. And he would be offensive to you, my friends. He would cause all of us to question everything about our lives. For the self-sufficient, we would hate Jesus' ministry. There's a reason they killed Jesus, friends. It's because he offended people who thought they had it all figured out. Uh, in your chairs when you came, I, I just, let, yesterday, I thought of 24 commands off the top of my head. There's 1,300 commands in the New Testament. Like commands. Follow these commands. And I just, as I was sitting there, I thought of 24 that came off the top of my head. Some of them are easy, like they're entryway commands. We're like, if you don't trust God with these, then you're never going to get to the deeper commands. And some of these commands are commands we work for our whole life. But they're commands. Like in Jesus' kingdom, he says, do this. And I put the verses there so you can look them up. And that's why I gave you the sheets. I just literally gave you my notes. uh, Because I want you to go see it. This is not King Blake. I hate some of these commands. I'm not going to lie to you. They hurt. But that's what my king has told me to do. So let's, let's just look at them together really quickly. Number one, we are to make other disciples and teach them all that Jesus commanded. Matthew 28, 18 through 19. This is, this is why I got this list in front of you. Jesus says, go and make disciples. You know what he didn't say? He didn't say, go and coddle people and tell them everything's okay. He said, go and teach them all that I have commanded you. 
Because he's the king of the universe. Number two, we're to be baptized after profession of faith. I, I can't tell you the amount of people who say they believe in Jesus and then like, they don't even do the very first thing he commanded, which is to be baptized. Like, it's like this is, the, this is the easiest of all the commands. And, and I think part of the problem is, is because in our culture, Christianity has become about information when really Jesus was all about formation. Like, please don't just come and listen to me and say, I believe that's true. No, you go and you live as if you believe that is true. He's inviting us into something. This is just the beginning. My prayer with the 30, 40 minutes I have with you is that you would take it and then go out and do it. Number three, we are to give our first 10% First fruits to the work of God as an act of worship. This is called the tithe, which is different. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus upholds this. He says, uh, you, should, uh, do, you should have tithed. He's talking to the Pharisees. He said, you, you tithe, but you didn't uh, love people like you should. And he said, you should have done the former without neglecting uh, the, the previous. I don't know how Jesus says it, but you can read the verse yourself. Okay? Uh, and so we see it all throughout Scripture. And Jesus would say that you are to tithe. You're to give your first 10% to the work of God, the way that God would want it to work in the world. And I can't tell you the amount of people that would say, well, I, I have this excuse or this excuse. Or instead, here's what I do uh, instead of tithing. Here's what I do uh, because I don't have enough money. Or, you know, I couldn't pay all my bills if I tithe. And I would just say, and, and by the way, let me back up for a second. Because when I talk about money, it always makes me nervous. Because uh, I benefit from it because I'm the pastor of the church. It's the most awkward position to be in. Uh, but you can look at my bank statement if you want to. I'm not making no money off of this deal. Uh, I wish that I was. It's uh, a joke. Uh, but Jesus, he says uh, to give the first 10%. And here's how like ridiculous it is if you don't follow this and you say you're in the kingdom of God. And again, I want to put another asterisk here. If, if you're ignorant of God's commands, if you're an immature believer and you're just coming up into this, uh, that's one thing. Because we are all ignorant of things. I learned about new sin last week when I was reading the scripture. I was like, oh, I should probably be doing that. That's one thing. And conviction is another thing. If you feel conviction, like I know I ought to be doing that and I want to do that, but I just, Lord, give me the faith. I believe, but help my unbelief. And you're trying to work towards it. That's another thing also. I'm talking to the people who would look at this and say, I don't care. I'm not doing that. Or open rebellion to the kingdom of God. And to those people, I would say, how can you be in the kingdom of God if you won't even obey this command? And, and here's how I know that you uh, are, are against it or that you're not in the kingdom because you pay your taxes to the kingdom of this earth, like nobody says, yeah, I don't feel like paying my taxes to the IRS. No, because the IRS is going to come bust down your door. You don't have any choice but to do it in the kingdom of God. Look, I'm putting bricks on your shoulders. I feel it in your faces. And that's okay. Let those bricks rise. Number four, some people would say, yeah, Blake, but we live in the new covenant, so we don't have to tithe. And I would, I would, that's fine. I agree with that. I think tithing is a training wheel because actually Jesus raises it even farther for us. Uh, we're to give 100% of our finances, time, and resources for the cause of Christ. Mark 12, 41 through 44, if you want to look at that. That actually all of my money is to be used for the kingdom of God. And that doesn't mean I'm supposed to give every dollar to the church. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying when I buy a house, I should be buying a house to do kingdom work in that house. When I'm thinking about purchasing a vehicle, I'm thinking, how will this vehicle benefit the kingdom of God or not benefit the kingdom of God? Every decision I make is based around the kingdom. Like for Taylor and I, part of the reason I drive a beat up Subaru is because I want to be able to stay debt free so I can uh, be able to invest more in the kingdom of God. I don't want to be tied down. Uh, and it doesn't make sense if you're of this world. It will only make sense if you understand the kingdom of God, if you're in the kingdom of God. Number five, we are to be more concerned with laying up treasures in the age to come than in this one, which is 
what I was referring to. Number six, here's another one. I just thought of the most offensive commands I could get. Um, I haven't had somebody walk out in a while, so I thought I'd try that today. (laughs) Your marriage is no longer about you. Let me just say that again. If you are in the kingdom of God, look at me. Your marriage is no longer about you. Your marriage is no longer about you. And I'm saying it three times because I have to remind myself. Because how often do I begin to feel sorry for myself because things aren't going the way I want it to go in my marriage? Jesus would say, if you are a Christ follower, your marriage is not about you. What's it about? It is about representing the way Christ loves the church. And along those lines, uh, verse 7, or not verse 7, these are not verses. Number 7, lust for anyone is equivalent of adultery. Fight lust at all costs. That's Matthew 5, 27, 29 if you want to look at it. People will talk a lot about how the Christian ethic is, is limiting in its sexuality. Uh, and I think it's more limiting than most people uh, even think. Like, it's not just about homosexuality. It's about, like, Blake Farley is not allowed to have a sexual thought about anybody except his wife. Like, think about how limited that is. Because loving my wife is not about just loving my wife. Although I have pleasure in my wife. I love my wife. She loves me. We have a great relationship. Uh, it, it is not primarily about that. Primarily what my wife and I's relationship is about is to show the world how Jesus has loved the church. So let, let me give you two uh, real-life examples of somebody who didn't get it and somebody who got it. Uh, I remember as a student pastor, this kid was telling me he was struggling with watching things he shouldn't watch on his phone. Uh, and I said, okay, well, let, let's, let's lock up your phone. Let's get it locked up. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. That's stupid. And I'm like, okay, well, you, you, don't, you don't get it yet. Because Jesus says to gouge out your eyes. And if you're not willing to actually take some steps to get the lust out of your life, like locking up my phone or gouging out my eyes. I vote for locking up my phone, right? But to this guy, his, he couldn't let go of his pleasure. And what he was doing is he was putting himself on the throne. I am king. I have the authority to do this or to not do this. And then on the reverse side of that is a man I look up to and I hope to be like one day. And that's Pastor Stephen Earp, uh, who I've mentioned multiple times. He's just such a great man of God. Who, uh, when they were in their 30s, the peak of their relationship supposed to be as, uh, as a married couple. His wife gets MS and it progresses to the point now where he has to care for her every day. He has to go in and flip her body over so she doesn't get rashes. He has to change her diaper. Think that's sexy? You think if it was about Stephen, he'd still be in that relationship? He said, like, I can't tell you the amount of people who've told me, put her in a nursing home and divorce her. God would understand. Stephen said, that's not what it's about. King Jesus has loved me in the same way I'm going to love Christy. He's punted his sexuality for the rest of his life at the peak of when his sexuality is supposed to be there. Because his marriage isn't about him. It's about loving Christy. And every time I talk about that, it brings tears to my eyes because I want to love my wife that way. Because you can't look at a person like that and not say, that is amazing. And Stephen gets to say in a way that I don't get to say that his marriage points to the way Jesus loves the church. Number eight, you must love Jesus more than your family. Heard a story about a group of missionaries uh, who were going to an unreached uh, village. And in the village, uh, the, the villagers poisoned all of their children. And these missionaries lost all of their kids. What are you going to do in that situation? You know what they did? They went back. And they kept ministering to those same people who literally killed their children. Could I do that? I have no idea. That seems incredibly difficult to me. 
But they did that because they heard the command of Jesus. And they believed that Jesus had their children. They believed that Jesus knew what was going on and Jesus was king and Jesus was the one who sent them to that place. Number nine, we are to forgive and forgive and forgive again. It's a funny story in Luke chapter 17. Peter uh, goes up to Jesus and he's like, Hey, Jesus, uh, am I supposed to forgive people seven times? He's feeling pretty good about it. Seven times, you know, I'm forgive, I forgave him again and again and again. And uh, Jesus says something like, yeah, Peter, you forgive him seven times times 70 every day. Yeah, that's the kind of forgiveness we're supposed to have. Remember earlier I told you I hate these commands, some of them? This would go in the category of I hate this command, and it follows really well with number eight, which is we are to, or number 10, forgive me, we are to love our enemies. Jesus, could you say we are to tolerate our enemies? We are to like our enemies? No, he says we are to love our enemies. Struggle with this one, friends. I got enemies I don't love. I'm just trying to tolerate them right now. Jesus says you need to keep working at it until you love those people. Number 11, we are to love the least of these. Yesterday, I passed a guy who needed help. Just confess that to you right now. Standing on the corner, needed some money. I was too busy. I I think Jesus would have had me to stop and love that guy. It's more important than anything else I was doing. Number 12, we are to love God with all our heart, mind, strength, and soul. This is one of those impossible commands that we are to work towards. Number 13, we are to love our neighbors. We are to pray. We are to live on the word of God. We are to renew our minds in view of his mercies. That's Romans 12, 1 through 4. In other words, I don't get my knowledge primarily from books or secular places. I I take all of that, and all that's important, all that's good, but it has to go back to the scriptures That this is what renews. So when I get a new idea and I think it's a good idea, I come here and see if it aligns up with what Jesus would say. And if it doesn't, then I have to to scratch that because I'm renewing my mind based upon what he says in view of his mercies. We are to gather with the saints, the church, Hebrews 10.25. That's another one that amazes me. People who say they want to be a part of the kingdom of God, but they hate the citizens of the kingdom. Like You want to be a part of the family of God, but you don't even want to be around your brothers and sisters. It doesn't, doesn't make sense. Well, for some of us it does. Uh, so our, our humanly brothers and sisters aren't always the best to be around. 18, we are to keep our word and live with integrity. We are to practice the secret, some secret disciplines, which is um, if all of your giving is public, uh, you, you're not doing it, right? Jesus says there's supposed to be some giving uh, that nobody even knows about. Uh, we're, we're to be praying in private. If all you're doing, and this is a, a hard one for pastors often, we get so caught up in our job that my longest prayers can sometimes be in public. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. Fasting, if you, if you, if you are uh, fasting and practicing self-denial before the Lord, there should be times nobody knows about it. You just did it. You weren't trying to earn anything from anybody. You were actually trying to enter into the presence of God with it. Number 19, or sorry, number 20, we are not to judge non-Christians by Christian standards. I'm going to say that again because I think we all need to hear it. We are not to judge non-Christians by Christian standards. Uh, this is one of the things that really makes me very angry when people try to put the yoke of a Christian law on people who never made Jesus their king. If Jesus isn't your king, I do not care what you do. Go! Do what you want to do. You should live it up because you're the king of your life. You get to decide. Blake has punted his life. Jesus said, hey, Blake, here's what I want you to do. I want you to give all of your desires, all of your pleasures, everything over to me and trust me and, and live for my kingdom. Do you guys realize how offensive that is? Can you imagine if I came up to you and I was like, hey, bro, uh, so what I want you to do is just forget everything you have planned for the rest of your life. And uh, that retirement fund you have, that looks good. What I want you to do is buy me a house with it. I think you should live for my desires. You'd look at me like I had smoked something I shouldn't smoke. 
Like, what is this guy thinking? And yet this is exactly what Jesus does. He says, the one who loses his life will be the one who gains his life. We lose our life for him. But to non-Christians, they're not held by that standard. Number 21, we are to participate in the Lord's Supper. This is an easy one. I threw some easy ones in there as we go along. Uh, 22, we are to pay our taxes without attempting to deceive our government. Uh, Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what is God's. I don't think we should be proud about, oh, look, I duped out the government in this way. I think Jesus would say, just pay your taxes. Be a good citizen. Number 23, uh, we are to go to Christians who offend us. It's, it's so sad to me that the church is the place where there's the most gossip in some places. Like, just go to the person. If, they're, if they offend you, we should be able to have a conversation. In fact, that's what Jesus says to do. Uh, 24, uh, this is kind of a, a big one. We are to deny ourselves. Yeah, it's not about us. It's about Jesus. Okay, so I put the, the yoke on your shoulders. That's just 24. There's 1,300. Uh, at the bottom, I put a, a free book you can download by a guy named John Piper. He talks about all the commands of, God, of Jesus, what he demands of us. This is just kind of scratching the surface. And you say, Blake, isn't this legalism? Last week, okay, you're contradicting yourself, buddy, because last week you said all I had to do was reach out to Jesus. Remember the woman? She was bleeding. She broke the law. She reached out to Jesus, and it was enough. Uh, remember Jairus? You know, he, he did it all right, but it didn't make a difference because they, they were equal. You remember what you said, Blake? Remember all that? I do remember all that. I do. And here's why this is not legalism. Here, here's, here's how these things come together. I want to give you seven, because uh, seven's a biblical number. Number one, if you are aware of the effects of sin, this list is a get-to, not a have-to. If you are aware that sin is what separates you from a holy God, if you are aware that sin is what leads your life to brokenness, if you are aware that it was sin that caused this world cosmically to be broken, then why would you not want to avoid it at all cost? And likewise, number two, if you are aware of the goodness of Jesus, this list is a get-to, not a have-to. Ephesians 2 says you have been saved by grace so that no man may boast, so that you can go out and do the good works that God has prepared for you. They're good works. It's like when you eat a really good steak. You want to eat the good steak. You don't want to go to a, you know, a restaurant with a bad steak anymore. Jesus is a good king with good commands. I want to walk into those commands. Like the firefighter is not a legalist when he tells you to get up and get out of your house. Don't, don't tell me what to do, buddy. Like, nobody says that because he's saving your life. What I'm trying to tell you is Jesus is saving your life. If you don't want to follow him, you don't have to follow him. But if you see Jesus for who he is, then I don't get what's going on here. But I'm all in, Jesus. Here I go. I'm going to follow you. Oh, number three. Christ has already secured our righteousness before God. This is the big one, why it's not legalistic. This is what Christ does for all sinners. So in other words, following this list, God's not going to, when you get there, he's not going to like look at this list and go, uh, okay, you did that, you did that. Oh, you didn't do that. You're not in. That's not how it works. Jesus goes and he lives the perfect life we could not live. He dies the death we deserve to die so that we can swap places. Uh, basically, Jesus takes our sin and Jesus gives us his righteousness. So when you stand before the throne room of God, this list is not going to be there. Jesus is going to be right behind you, your big brother, and he's going to say, look at me, don't look at him. And we will be counted as righteous based upon what Jesus did. This list comes after that, not before that. Number four, it is ultimately through the Holy Spirit-empowered effort that we accomplish these Philippians 3 tells us the Holy Spirit is the one willing it, giving you the desire, and the one working it out in your life. Number five, we do this from a place of love, not to earn love. Number six, Jesus gives these commands to form us into his people. These are about being 
not doing. See, the reason Jesus tells us to do this is because he's making us into somebody. Jesus doesn't need your money. Uh, I'm going to say that again. Jesus does not need your money. Ascent does not need your money. Like, in a practical sense, we do. But in another practical sense, I've seen people leave who gave a lot of money and Jesus still took care of us because Jesus is going to do what Jesus wants to do. So why does he ask us to give our money and our time and all of these things? It's because he wants you to become the type of people who trust him in all of life. He's forming you into somebody. And for the Christian who just takes in information, they become a really old, immature Christian. And we've probably all seen people who say they've been a Christian for 40 years, but there's like no fruit in their life of joy or peace or kindness. It's like, what happened to you? It's because they became fat with information, but they never actually obeyed King Jesus. So they weren't formed into the type of people Jesus wanted them to be. Number six, uh, sorry, number seven, this is how we glorify, or glorify means to reflect God to the world. They can't see our faith, but they do see our obedience. This is what Paul says, Romans 1.5. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring out the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles. So the, the way we reflect God is not by our faith. Um, the way you know that I love Taylor is not because I tell you I love Taylor. Like if I just say I love Taylor, but I'm, I'm mean to her, you're going to say I don't think he really loves Taylor. The way you know I love Taylor, the way my belief is evident to you is the actions I do for her. So our actions, the way when we obey King Jesus, that's actually how the world knows that we are Christians. It's our testimony to them. They say, you guys are crazy. Why are you living this way? And then we can point them to the one who can heal them of all the brokenness in their life. The, the true restore, the great physician in their life. This is what we're called to do, my friends. Now, let me uh, try to remove some of the bricks off your shoulders with the rest of the time I have. Uh, but I don't want to remove too many. Because I want you to know you are supposed to be submitted under King Jesus. And I want you to honestly ask yourself, am I submitted under King Jesus? Or do I just want Jesus to make my life a little bit better? I'm going to read verses 10 uh, through the end of this little section. And then we'll come back to King Herod's story next week. uh, Because I spent 30 minutes on four verses, which is awesome. All right. Verse 10. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. See, just like we said last week, Jesus is not a beggar. He's not going to force any of you to submit to his kingdom. And I don't want you to think that you have unlimited opportunity, because you don't. We all have a limited opportunity to respond. If you feel something today to respond, to say, I want to be in Jesus's kingdom, or if you are a Christian and you say, I feel called to begin to take a faith step and obey Jesus in this way, don't you dare wait because you have a limited opportunity. Verse 12. So they went out and preached that people should repent. This is a faith of repentance. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Notice who they healed? The sick people. This is not a message for the self-sufficient. If you are self-sufficient, then you will not like this message. If you are powerful in your own eye, you will not like this message. That's why I said I don't think Jesus would get along with any of our political leaders today. Because they have all the power. You think any of them are going to step down and say, Jesus, you lead the country. No, they fought their whole life to get that. And maybe some of you feel the same way about your own life. I fought my whole life to get this money. It's mine. I do what I want with it. My sexuality, my pleasure, I do what I want with it. And I'm going to say, that's fine. I'm not mad at you. I'm really not. But if you're going to follow the Jesus of the scripture, you have to be willing to submit all of that. And if you don't trust him, then that's okay too. 
but don't, don't just go around calling yourself something that you're not. You know, I could, I could sit in my garage and make engine noises, but it doesn't mean I'm a car. <laughs> Put your head in an oven, you're not a biscuit. <laughs> Call yourself a Christian, but you don't submit to the kingdom of God. You're not a Christian. I tell you that because I love you. Please hear that. I want to I close with this. I'm not, I'm not going to get into to King Herod's uh, story too much uh, because uh, of the sake of time. But next week, when we come back to it, we're going to look at two, two things that will keep us out of the kingdom. Two reasons why this list is not. You know what? We're just going to do it. I just made an executive decision. You're like, oh boy, here we go. It won't be 30 minutes. It'll be quick. All right, verse 14. So as we come into King Herod, this crazy story. King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. Still others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. So remember when we left John, it was in chapter 1. We heard that he got arrested, but we didn't know why or what happened to him. Well, we find out here. Uh, John was arrested by Herod, and he ends up with his head chopped off. Uh, and then this, Mark does this thing. It's like a flashback. Here we go. We're going back in time to see what happened. Verse 17. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias. Which, can we take a moment of silence for her name? Like, you're destined to have a bad life when your mom names you Herodias. Like, I, I just like, what's going through their heads as they're looking at this beautiful baby girl? What will you name her? Herodias. <laughs> Awful. Uh, continuing on. Chained him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. <laughs> Awkward. Got a sex scandal going on here. Uh, so Philip uh, and Herod both were leaders under the Roman Empire of different areas. They all come together to uh, convene for this meeting at the emperor's place. And uh, Herod falls in love with Herodias. Only problem is it's his brother's wife. Uh, and Herodias is like, yo, bro, I'm out. I'm coming with you. Yeah, if you think it's strange, it gets stranger and more awkward. Continuing on, verse 19. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. <laughs> Don't you love John? He just spits in the face of authority. Hey, you're not supposed to marry your brother's wife. Verse 19. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. Really quickly, that's reason number one, some of you are going to miss this. Because you love your sin more than you love your Savior. And that's Okay. But this bliss is going to cause you to get angry, not actually be a source of conviction or a source of, I want to follow in the ways of Jesus. Verse 20, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. So what a lot of people think is it's doubt that keeps us out of the kingdom of God. And I want to come back to this here in just a moment, but it's not doubt. It's something else that keeps Herod from the kingdom of God. In fact, I believe doubt can be a very good thing. Doubt actually strengthens our beliefs. Uh, One of the biggest things I've ever doubted since I became a Christian was actually scripture itself. When I first became a youth pastor, I started preaching this. There's some things in here and I was like, man, I I don't know. And I started looking at some things and people who were trying to take away from the authority of the scriptures. And I had a serious doubt in my heart. And yet that doubt, as I continue to obey Jesus and look and read, actually has now formed me into somebody who has a higher view of Scripture. It's more nuanced. And doubt is actually how all of our faiths start. You have to first begin to doubt the way you're currently living so that then you can enter into what Jesus has said. It's not, it's not doubt that is the opposite of faith. Verse 21, it says, An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced... And I'm guessing it wasn't a ballet. 
She pleased Herod and his guest. The king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Wasn't even his kingdom to give. Verse 24, you know, he's probably thinking she's going to ask for Taylor Swift tickets or something. It's a teenage girl, but that's not what happens. She goes to her mom and says, what should I ask for? Her mom says, well, this is what I've been waiting for. John the Baptist's head. You know, like, geez, why can't we just kill him? But she wants, she wants it on a platter. Uh, Herodias. Verse 25. At once she hurried to the king and said, Daddy, I don't want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. And then here's what ultimately kept Herod from the kingdom of God. It says, although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths, the guest he did not want to refu- and the guest he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. See, Herod feared man more than he had faith in God. It was fear that was the opposite. And you just look at the, the opposite of Herod and John the Baptist. And isn't it so sad? Herod can't even stand up to people at a cocktail party. And John says, cut my head off, you take it. That's okay with me. Why? Because one had his faith in himself and in people. And one had his faith in the God of this universe who has the power to resurrect the dead. See, this is the difference. It's not doubt that keeps you out. And here's the good news about Jesus. You don't even have to actually fully believe everything I just read to you right there. Verses, or not verses, numbers 1 through 24 of the commands. You just have to begin to have, have enough faith to obey them. To say, Jesus, I don't fully understand this. I tell people all the time, just give me a year. That's where Jesus starts with his disciples. He doesn't start by, here's the Torah, you should obey. He just says, follow me. And the disciples just had to have enough faith to leave their life and begin to follow Jesus. And I'll tell you the same. If you give me a year, we have starting point. Next week, you come to starting point. You jump into starting point. You, you begin to read the Bible, get in a DNA group. And as God will show you things, just say, okay, I don't understand, but I'm going to obey it. That's why all of our DNA groups end with action. I'm just going to obey it. It's hard. I don't fully know if this is going to work out, but I'm going to obey it. And here's why. Because I want you to know you are not saved by the amount of your faith. You're saved by the object of what your faith is in. So here's what I mean by that. And I, I'm going to close with this. We uh, often think, and people kind of, like, in their minds, I guess, they think that God has a faith scale in heaven, and, like, this meter's here, and, and if you get your faith above this point on the scale, he'll heal your, heal your sicknesses, and if you get to this point, you know, then you get to get into heaven. Like, it's, it's the amount of faith you have. And I would just say that's ridiculous. Faith in faith is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Faith has to be connected to something. It's the object of your faith that matters. So let's say we're flying in an airplane. And Jen and Briley, if you guys want to go ahead and come up. Uh, Let's say we're flying in an airplane. uh, And I am terrified to fly on an airplane. And you have flown a thousand times. And you are completely confident, cool, and collected. And uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trembling. My palms are sweaty. But we walk down the aisle, and I get on the plane. The stewardess closes the door, and we're setting down. And I'm, I'm like gripping my seat really hard. You're kind of laughing at me. Uh, and then we hit turbulence. And uh, you know, every, I mean, this is bad turbulence. Everything's shaking. Everything's going up. And, and I'm over in the corner crying, asking for my mom. And you're over there, just calm, cool, and collected. This happens all the time. You know, the oxygen masks come down, and you're like, oh, "That's cool. Just put this on, bro. You'll be fine." In that moment, I have complete lack of faith. I mean, I, I am 
completely doubting every decision I ever made to be on this airplane. And in that same moment, you completely have total faith. This happens all the time. We're going to land the plane. It's going to be okay. In that moment, does either of our faith have any impact on the airplane? You can have all the faith in the world, and if the pilots crash the thing, you're dead. And I can have no faith in the world, and if the pilots land the thing, I'm still alive. It's not my faith that saves me. It's the object of my faith. The only thing that will kill me is if my fear outweighs my faith in the pilots, and I get to the point where I say, you know what? I think I have a better chance of flying on my own than being in this airplane. And I open the door, and I jump out of the airplane. That's the only thing that will kill me. Because the object of my faith has changed. What I want to tell you today, guys, is Jesus loves you. He's going to take care of you. He's a good king. You don't have to have all the faith in the world. You just have to, faith, have to have the faith to make him your king and begin to obey him. And here's the good news about Jesus. If you follow him for a year and you hate that you made that decision, you can just stop. Your life's already broken anyways. You can go back to the brokenness if you want to. But if you've come to the conclusion where I don't have all I need in myself, and I believe this Jesus guy can maybe provide me something that I don't know about, I believe that his grace is something I need in my own life. I've become aware of the effects of sin and how it's made me an enemy against God, but more than that, the effects that I feel right now, the broken relationships and the brokenness within me. I would just tell you, friends, get on the plane with me. Put your faith in Jesus. Take the crown off of your own head. Say, Jesus, I fully submit to you. And you know what you'll find at the foot of Jesus? He loves beggars. When he asks you to obey, he asks you to obey because he loves you. Not because he wants anything from you, but because of what he wants for you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this strange story. For this story where we see two different kings. Lord, and it wasn't Herod's doubt that kept him from the kingdom. It was his fear. And Lord, I know that today there are people who have different fears when it comes to entering into your kingdom. They fear giving up everything in their life and and wondering if your foundation is sure enough to hold them. They fear what people would think. Some people fear because to everybody else, they've already called themselves Christians and they've been doing the Christian thing for a long time and they've just realized that they weren't Christians until today. They realize what it meant to submit their life to you. Lord, I pray that those fears would not outweigh the faith that they would have in you. Or that they would not miss an opportunity to give everything they have to you to say, Lord, you are my king. Lord Jesus, we come bowing before you and your kingdom. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Friends, uh, if you want to put your faith in Jesus, I'm not a huge fan of doing the raise your hand thing. Uh, But I want you to know, with eyes open, everybody looking at me, I want you to come to me. Do not waste opportunity. If you feel God moving in your heart, like I I want to be a part of the kingdom, please come talk to me and I will show you how easy it is to enter into that life. And if you're a Christian here today who's maybe backslidden away from God, I would say re-engage in obeying King Jesus. Trust that he is good. Do not waste the opportunity. Friends, let's stand and we're going to sing to this amazing king who has given his life so that you and I might have life.
Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.